Hi, welcome to episode 18 of the We're All Screwed Up and That's Okay podcast with me, Dawn Walton. I was in a room in Clubhouse the other day and talking about various things. And after I'd been talking, people said, you know, how did you end up doing this? What's your qualifications? What's your training? What's your background? And so I thought I'd do this week's episode of the podcast on a little bit about me and a little bit about my journey and how I got to this place where I'm doing this thing. And so I have to caution that a lot of my story is not particularly fun. So if you are worried that you might be triggered, there's pretty much everything in it that might trigger you. So I'll try not to be too explicit, but could you please not listen to this episode if you are not in the best state of mind? Uh, that's the, the caution. So, um, so I am a therapist. When people say, what sort of therapist are you? I say, I'm a head therapist. I reprogram your brain, which is not something if you Google how to qualify as a head therapist, how to qualify as a brain programmer that you'll find. So obviously, there's been a bit of a journey to get here. So let's talk first about my qualifications and what got me here. My first degree was in computer science. I studied at UMIST in Manchester, uh, which no longer exists. It was part of the University of Manchester. It was the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology. And straight out of school, when I was 18, I went to UMIST and I studied computers. I've always been a bit of a geek, always been into computers, and this was what I wanted to do. And one other thing about studying at such a good university is that you don't learn how to program in a specific language or how to work with a specific thing. You learn how to think. And that's what my degree taught me. It taught me how to think, how to structure, how to problem solve, how to work together, how to plan. And it taught me things that I still use to this day. And when I finished university, my first job was a programming job. Now, I went into university being able to program and I came out hating it feeling like I couldn't do it just because of the way it's taught because we all work differently. My husband, who I met at university, came out loving programming because it taught him and it worked well for him. So there's not many jobs that you can get. So you have to you can't be that picky about what jobs you get out of university. And so I took a job that said must like cats and be willing to take the donkey down the field in the morning. (laughs) It was a programming job, but it was a guy in a little software house and they used to specialize in writing library software. And um, they had a client that was slightly different from their normal client, who was a Pakistani and Indian bookseller. And they had promised they would do a project for him, but they'd lost all the documentation and they shelved it because they didn't have anybody spare. So when I joined the company, they said, look, what we'd really like you to do is work with this guy and tell him that um, don't let him know we've lost everything. So my first job was working with a guy, building a system for him, prototyping it, visiting him a lot. And that went really well. But it also taught me that I hate a job where I know what I'm doing every day and I just sit and stare at the computer every day. And so after six months, I agreed that we'd call it an end of contract and we parted and I went off looking for a new job. And the next job I got was tech support from Windows 95 when it was launched, which seems like forever ago, right? (laughs) So I was doing tech support for Microsoft. And that taught me how to talk to people and problem solve at the same time, how to search for information, how to look for patterns and how to explain stuff to people 
so that they could understand it. And actually, I have a real skill for doing that. So much so that very quickly I became the trainer for all the other people who were doing tech support because I have a real knack for turning information into something that's usable and understandable by anybody and being able to communicate and engage people. And that was a career that started me on the call center business that I was in for 10 years. Um, I worked for one company for 10 years by the time. So I joined with a company with 20 odd people and I left 10 years later where there were 17,000 people worldwide. I was um, head of the quality and training organization, traveling all over the world, helping call centers improve. And I went from that to do consultancy and I went from that to work as a senior manager in BT. But you see, the thing is that all through this, no matter how successful I was, no matter what was going on, so I'd met my husband and got married and and, um, we'd moved to Scotland and everything was great except me. I was not great. I was incredibly unhappy uh, and I didn't want to live. I was just getting by moment to moment and I was acting. And actually because I was acting, that's why I was so good at what I did. At 18 years old, in my first day at university, I sat there with a bottle of strong painkillers on the table and with a plan to take them. I'd been collecting them from my mother, who's disabled and in pain all the time, and had told me which tablets not to touch. So I had been collecting them for a year. There was always somebody at home, so I didn't want to take them and get caught. I wanted to take them and to die. So I went to university with a bottle of tablets, fully planning on taking them while nobody would find me. But I never did. I went and spoke to other girls that were in the halls that I was living in, which is very unlike me. I'm not a sociable person whatsoever. And I realized I could be anybody I wanted to be in that moment. And that has been the thing that has allowed me to be successful my whole life. Because I had the ability to ignore all the doubts, all the insecurities, because that was a part of me that I didn't let out. And the other part of me got to be whoever she wanted to be. And that was a very successful, outgoing, confident, capable funny person and so I was really successful and really miserable (laughs) and at one point my husband got so fed up of me me being miserable that he actually arranged for me to see a person-centered counselor who I saw for a year and a half every few weeks and um, whilst it felt that stuff had emerged nothing changed and um, eventually I felt that I was in an okay place and I stopped the therapy and carried on with life, but I still wasn't happy. And then eventually I had my daughter, and when my daughter was three years old, she started saying to me, are you happy, mommy? And I'd say, yes, darling. And then she'd keep asking. And so I went on Twitter and I said, why is my daughter constantly asking me if I'm happy? And they said, she's learning empathy. And I went, she's not learning it very well because she keeps asking. And it was in that moment that I realized that it was one thing me being screwed up. But this idea that I was going to screw up her life as well was just not okay, And it was time to do something about it. Now, a few paths mixed at the same time. You know how these things sometimes do? Everything converges into the right moment. And I came across a guy. I was told about a guy who was in Harley Street. He was a cognitive hypnotherapist, and I was told by a trusted friend that he would be able to help me. Now, I was working as a senior manager. I was on a good wage. I was traveling to London all the time. But even so, the idea of affording to go and see a Harley Street therapist for years after a time 
it's just I can't do that and they said he'll be able to help you in a few sessions and it was really funny it's like oh what a crazy idea knowing everything that I had going on inside of me but there was a little voice in my head that said what if that was true what if it was true that this guy could help you and it was enough for me to mail him and I mailed back and forth with him and we had a really good connection and he was really um, I don't even know how to ex- explain it, but he, he kind of got me and I felt that this guy might be able to help me. And what, wouldn't that be amazing to be able to say yes and mean it when my daughter asked me if I was happy? So I arranged to see him, uh, but he was a cognitive therapist and I wasn't going to sit in a room with a strange guy who told me to close my eyes. So I took a friend with me and um, they sat through the first session. And the first session was really interesting. Um, it was really hard. He had to work really hard to get anywhere. And I was determined not to help him at all in that process. And um, after about an hour and a half, I kind of left Harley Street, went to London City Airport. And I was sat there in the airport and there was this weird thing in my head. It was silence. And until I'd had the silence, I didn't know how noisy it was and how negative the voice in my head was. And I sat there going, blimey, how is that even possible? I sat there resisting everything he did. And yet, In such a small space of time, so much feels like it's changed. And then I I was hooked and I'm like, this is crazy. How come the world doesn't know that this exists? I went back for my second session and by then I was already thinking, I need to learn how to do this. It felt like everything in my life had led me to that point. Now, the guy, Trevor Sylvester, was the founder of cognitive hypnotherapy, it turns out. And he has a training school where he trains uh, one group of therapists every year. And so by the second session, I'm like, I really feel like everything in my life has led me to this point. Things were changing for me personally. By the third session, I was able to say, yeah, I had a moment where I felt what happiness felt like because I didn't know until that point. And and to be honest, I still struggle to really know what happiness feels like, but it's so much different the way it was. I didn't know how I could do this. My, My daughter was three years old. I was in a senior manager position working full time in BT. Um, my husband was at home able to look after my daughter but the idea of spending one weekend a month for 10 months in London as well as doing my job as well as juggling my family seemed unattainable and when I mentioned that to Trevor he said yeah you know whatever you believe is fine (laughs) he has a way of doing that and so I signed up to do it and I made it work and 10 months later I carried on my therapy journey in total since 2011. Since May 2011, I've had about eight sessions with Trevor, which is not many if you think of the scale of things. And I am unrecognizable now to the person that I was back then. I qualified uh, with my cognitive hypnotherapy qualification in 2012, in August 2012. And my intent was to spend two years And then quit my my senior job and set up as a private therapist. But I got a chance to be paid off. So in July 2013, I set up as a full-time therapist using my cognitive hypnotherapy training. And because I'm a problem solver and because I have my own way of doing things, my approach to therapy evolved. I found that the idea of any eyes closed work didn't work for me. And also... All my friends on Twitter were saying, what a shame it is that you don't live closer to us. And I thought, well, you shouldn't have to physically be able to see me for me to be able to help you. So I started evolving an online model. Now, bear in mind, 2013, 2014, well before anybody had heard of Zoom, well before Zoom was even out, to be honest, um, I was already doing therapy for people all over the world. 
And I evolved my approach based on the fact that we were on a webcam. It doesn't work to have your eyes closed to need a relaxation state. And actually, you don't need that. We've talked about in various podcasts, you don't need to be in any sort of trance state for your brain to switch off. It's doing it all the time. And as I went through this, I came up with this idea of this primitive caveman rules. And that's where the first caveman book came from. Um, I spoke to a guy called Dr. David Hamilton, who's a brilliant guy. How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body is an awesome book, and he's a super lovely guy. And I spoke to him at a uh, National Council for Hypnotherapy conference. And I said, I've got this idea, and I want to do a talk on this idea. And I'm thinking of writing a book. And he said, sounds brilliant. Everybody will have it. Write the book. So I wrote the book. In a couple of months, I wrote Caveman Rules of Survival. And the publisher snapped it up, and it was published. And then I was bitten by the book writing bug, right? So it's so easy to write a book (laughs) for me anyway. And it's so easy when you don't listen to the limiting voice in your brain. I wrote the book, I got a TED talk. And and then because I'm eternally learning and eternally curious, I decided to do a master's in psychology so I could add to what I already know, follow that thread, evolve my way of helping people. And so over the last eight years, so July 2021 is my eight year anniversary of being a full time therapist. In that time, I've seen over 1200 clients all over the world across 17 countries. I've written four books. I'm just on the way to write the fifth book at the moment. I've done a TED talk and I've reached people all over the world. I've got this podcast and I've got many things going on because I've become passionate about helping people realize how screwed up we are. And helping normalize it and helping people realize how easy it is to change. So that's the the core part of being me. I'm a problem solver. So when you come to see me, I'm not a talker. I'm not a sit down. I don't need to understand your life. I don't need your life history. I don't even need you to understand where things are coming from because I know there is a route and there's a way of dealing with it. And whether it's trauma that we're dealing with or regular triggered memories, there's always something I can do. And you are a puzzle box. And my job is to unlock you so you can be the best version of you, whatever that is. My job is not to care what your label is. My job is not to care how you live your life. And in many ways, don't take this the wrong way, but I don't actually care what happens after our sessions in the sense that I just want you to be you. What you do with that is your choice, not mine. We are different people. So even if we have similar experiences, there is no value in me putting my model of the world onto you. There is no value in me knowing what you've been through or having been through something similar. And let's get real on this one. As a therapist, I cannot have been through everything all my clients have been through. I can't have phobias. I can't have, you know, addictions. I can't have all the same stuff. And even if I have the same stuff, it won't come from the same basis. So actually, it's a risk if I had something that matched, because it could make me feel that I knew what you were going through, and I don't. So that's not relevant for me. I have to solve the puzzle that is you, that what's getting in the way, I have to clear it out the way and I have to let you be you. And so the value that I bring to what I do is nothing to do with my experiences in life and everything to do with the fact that I know you can overcome them. That from that first session with Trevor, I realized that it's actually possible for things to change in a way that nearly two years with a person-centered counselor, didn't even touch on, didn't even come close to what one session did. 
And I think that's a magic that everybody should be able to experience. So what was this that led me to this point? So that was part one, right? So no triggers in this one. This one's got maybe triggers for you. So could be a good point to stop listening if you, if you want to. So <clears throat> first 18 years of my life, I regard as, as fairly much a write-off. So the first few years I lived and was brought up on a chicken farm in North Wales and by my father and my mother. And when I was about three or four years old, and so timelines uh, are a bit blurry, obviously, because I was a kid, and you'll understand as we go on that I don't necessarily have the best sources of information about what happened. Um, but when I was three or four years old, my father and my mother split. Now, I have two very different stories about what happened there, one from my father, one from my mother. My father's one is a bit more credible, but it's their stories and it's not mine to share. So I'm not going to share that because everybody starts questioning it. So let's deal with what my experience of my childhood was, not what anybody else's was. So my father remarried and my stepmother hated me and my brother. So my brother is a year and three quarters older than me, hated us. Um, and I think it was to do with stuff with my mother and various things like that. But anyway, for whatever reason, she hated us. And I've later learned that she was also an alcoholic. So that had some impact on stuff. So my father was the manager of this chicken farm. And so always up in the sheds, always busy with work. And my stepmother was the one that looked after us most of the time. And because she hated us, looked after can be put in quotes because she didn't want anything to do with us. Um, children should be seen and not heard. Um, not seen and not heard. So she wasn't great at feeding us couldn't be bothered so um, we were skeletally thin and had a nasty temper so would beat us and would leave us sitting outside most of the day if the weather was okay if it was not okay we had to sit inside watching telly but we weren't allowed to move off the sofa and change the channel or anything like that so from the age to about four to about nine-ish I lived in that environment school knew apparently what was going on but nobody did anything um, I remember a time when my brother and I were having school dinners and the dinner ladies were stood over us with the vats, you know, the big vats they had the custard in, serving up, helping after helping for us. So it was known, but nobody talked about it. Nobody did anything. Um, and that was fine. And my only escape was when I went to see my granny. My granny lived in the, the Finn Peninsula in the hills of, of North Wales. And we used to go up there and she used to walk a dog every day. We used to go on walks with her and a dog. We used to play mattresses from an old caravan and great food. I'll tell you about food everywhere, <laughs> every part of my life. It was kind of significant. And it was a real escape to go up to my grandmother's. But the problem was to get up to my grandmother's, we had to be picked up by my grandfather. And he would take us and he would drive very erratically in this big white fish van because he was a fisherman. And my brother made me sit next to him on the seat, in this bench seat on, on the front of the van. And he used to put his hand down my pants and things like that. Um, there's a lot I don't remember, <coughs> but he, he did stuff like that. And um, I remember one day I'd gone into the living room and he was exposing himself to me under the table and I ran away. So I, I think all sorts of going on, but it was neither here nor there. And then um, when I was eight years old, a social services person came to speak to us. So the story goes. 
And I remember my stepmother saying to us, you say nothing to them, you don't tell them anything. And they were supposed to ask who we wanted to live with, because by this time my mother had come back on the scene, had a new man, and we often went to stay with them over the holidays. And so the social services asked me and my brother, and she asked my brother, and my brother said, you know, we want to live here. And she asked me, and I said, I want to live with my mum, <laughs> which apparently was not what you needed to do. When we came out of that meeting, my dad was really disappointed in me. I remember him sitting me on lap and kind of going, you know, if you don't want to live here, I don't really love you. And me thinking, oh, that, that kind of sucks. And, and that was just one of those moments. And anyway, so when I was nine years old or so, um, my stepmother and father had had a new baby. They'd had a baby girl. And she was about six months old, so she was still very much a baby. And we moved to spend the summer holidays with my mother and her new man. And um, at the end of the summer holidays, they said, how would you feel if we didn't send you back? Now, obviously, that was like, woohoo, <laughs> result. We get fed, we don't get hit. That's fantastic. Let's stick with this. So we ended up staying there. And I went to school. Uh, it was in Stockport. I went to school there for a year or so. And life was pretty good. Uh, life was the new man was a lorry driver, so he wasn't there much. So it was just us, my mum, and summer days, and playing out, and loved school, and everything was fantastic. And then um, after about a year, so when I still had half a year in primary school, I think it was, we moved back to Anglesey. So he lost his job or changed his job. We moved back to Anglesey. And then it was like, just imagine a dark cloud moves over the whole world. So my mother's disabled. She has... Uh, she had a bit of spine missing when she was born. She had a spinal fusion. Uh, they disintegrated over time in constant pain on morphine and all sorts of other tablets and very much needed caring for. So by the time we moved back to Anglesey, um, she was in a bit of a state. My stepfather was home all the time and uh, was quite a dominant character um, and treated me and my brother like slaves. You know, we had these strips on the windowsill that, that absorbed the condensation, and every morning we had to go and squeeze them into a bucket, had to make his sandwiches, but if you didn't butter right to the edges, you got in trouble, um, had to iron his shirts, and they had to be just right, and all sorts of stuff, and it was just like a really dark time. And then he started coming to say goodnight to me, and he said, um, I'm going to teach you what boys do to girls. And so from the age of 10 or so, the abuse started. And when I was 12, I told my mother. And my mother raged at me, shouted at me, asked me what I expected her to do. And I said, you know, get out of here. And she said, no way, we're not going to do that and never talk about this again. And I remember sitting on my bed at 12 years old thinking, I, I have no idea what to do now. Now, luckily, there's no social media, there's no connections, so um, I didn't uh, know that you could self-harm, I didn't know that you could kill yourself, so all I did was I internalised it. And actually, I have zero memories from the age of 12 to about the age of 16. My mind is blank, they are blocked off from me. And recently, I tried to get a therapist friend to help me dig into that, and as we cracked open the door, it became clear that I thought the abuse had stopped, but it had carried on. So, so that's why that area is blocked off from me. It's a bit annoying because there's lots of good memories in there too. But anyway, um, so I, I kind of got through life, got through school. School was my safe place. Um, I was really good at school, had no problems at school. 
And then when I was about 16, I had a conversation with a friend who said, uh, you want to come to this nightclub? And I'm like, no. And she's like, are you not into boys? And I went, I just know too much about what goes on. And it was like this gate unlocked in my brain and and this block. It didn't unlock the stuff that I kind of blocked away, but I suddenly realized everything that had been going on and I remembered stuff and, and I became very, very internalized and I thought that people just didn't want to be friends with me but actually I probably was really crappy to be friends with and so by the time I was 17 I was trying to do my A-levels and I couldn't get to school and now I realize I was having panic attacks and anxiety but at the time it just felt like morning sickness and everybody joked about that Um, and so for a year I ended up not going to school but trying to do the work at home in fact I ended up sitting my exams at home And I had all sorts of investigations with the doctors and stuff, but at no point did I see a psychologist. Um, Probably wouldn't have told them anything anyway. So when I was 18, I got my exam results and I did three A-levels and I got an A, a B and a fail. And actually a B, a C and a fail. And that wasn't enough to get me to do my degree. And so it felt like my life was over because I planned to go to university and kill myself. (laughs) I couldn't even do that. But I got in through clearing. And that's when my life changed. So from the point at which I left home at nine or so years old, my dad didn't have anything to do with me. They all were dancing around my stepmother. So my sister was brought up as an only child. She had no idea that she had a brother and sister. She went to the same primary school as us. Everybody kept a secret from her. And she had this inkling growing up that she had siblings, but... You know, everybody said, no, no, you don't, until she was about 16 years old. And in the high school she was at, the uh, other kids, one of the other kids said, how's your brother and sister? And she went, I don't have one. They went, yeah, you do. And she went home and she asked my dad and he admitted. And then she asked my granny and she found a photograph of her. And then she tried to track us down and we eventually connected. Um, But she'd been brought up a whole life with this lie. And a very different life to ours, you know. She hadn't been beaten the star because it was her mother, not her uh, stepmother, and didn't have the same reasons for hating her. So, so later on in life, um, as things went through, my brother ran away when he was 16. As soon as he was old enough, he ran away to London. He was on drugs on the streets, and he has been ever since. He's now 50. How, I don't know how that happened. And he... Uh, He's still on methadone and still has an alcohol problem, but somehow has managed to live this long. I have no idea how dealing with his struggles. And um, my father had reconnected with him. Um, My father was still in touch with my sister, but I was the only one up until about uh, five years ago when he, um, my sister recommended he read one of my earliest books and he did and he got in touch. Um, So it's been an interesting journey. In 2015, I took my abuser to court and um, my mother was not corroborating my story all the way through. And eventually I sent an email exchange that we'd had where we talked about how I told her about what happened to my grandfather. And she claimed that she'd um, responded to that and how she was really sorry about not believing me about my my stepfather. But she she didn't believe me. That was the kinky. Anyway, so she didn't corroborate my story. So I'd sent this um, 
email to the police as evidence so that I thought that they could use it. But actually what happened was his defence lawyer used it to say that all the stuff that I said on video, which was a three-hour torturous video that I did on all the abuse, um, it was my grandfather that did it, not him. And so he was found not guilty, even though he turned up to the verdict with his giant suitcase. Everybody expected him to go down, um, but not enough of the jurors found him guilty because they were able to say... Not that it didn't happen, but it was not him. And the only person that could have proved them wrong was my mother. And my mother didn't turn up to court and didn't even have a statement that was good enough to read out to be used. So from that point onwards, I have never spoken to my mother again and never will. Uh, you can't let yourself be betrayed too many times. That's just daft. And she lost all contact with her granddaughter, which is a massive loss to her because my child is amazing. And so with all of this, and I guess that's just the summary, sorry for going on, <laughs> but the point is that there is this perception that when you have a rubbish start in life, that you will be screwed up for life, that you will be traumatized and triggered and be unable to function. And actually, even without help, people like me with stories like mine do amazingly well. They have families, they have jobs, they get on in life. They might be miserable as hell inside, but they actually are amazingly able to function. And this is the one thing that is the most important thing I want you to take away from this, is that we focus too much on what we feel we can't do and not enough on how amazing you are to keep going when you feel everything is pointless and hopeless and everything about you is rubbish. If you think, if you can do that when you feel that bad, can you imagine what's possible when you start feeling better? And everything is possible. Everything can be changed. It does not matter what your childhood was, what your start in life, what your experiences was. It is possible. I have a wonderful life. I have an amazing husband, an amazing child, great friends. And in the main, I am very happy in my life. And I say in the main because this is a journey and I'm still working through stuff. But here's the thing. When I, something comes up, I mull on it, I talk to friends about it, I try and understand it, and then I get help, and I get it sorted, and I get it out of the way, and I move on. And that's what I've done for the last eight years since I started my journey. This is what I've done consistently, well, it's last 10 years since I started this journey. I have consistently, if I feel I get stuck, I get somebody to help me, because you can't change this stuff yourself. I do a lot of soul searching, talking, analyzing and understand it so I kind of take people um, an idea of what I need fixing because I'm very awkward to work with but but here's my message so what are my qualifications for doing this I have a master's in psychology I did a training qualification to get my therapy qualification in cognitive hypnotherapy at the Quest Institute in London so I'm a Quest trained cognitive hypnotherapist which is a fairly unique thing it's Nothing I do is about eyes shut, trance state, nothing. You will not get that. You'll get a normal problem-solving conversation with me. We don't even have to dig through your past. We're just trying to rewire your brain. And I specialize in trauma because I'm that curious person and I've understood all these tools I have. Why have they worked? What works? Because when I help people with childhoods that are in any way similar to mine, who've had traumatic stuff, who've struggled with their whole life, I am so lucky that I can help people clear this. And the reason I can do this is because there is nobody that is outside of my help because 
I have been able to change myself and have helped change myself. So I know it's possible. My childhood experiences do not make me a better therapist. It's having the help and overcoming my childhood experiences that make me a better therapist because I I 100% believe I can do that for you. That's what makes me a good therapist. So hopefully this has been interesting rather than me just waffling on about myself, um, but it's worth having this stuff written down. I am happy for you to talk to me and ask me questions. I have no problems talking about this thanks to all the therapy I've had. So um, you can email dawn at thinkitchangeit.com if what I said resonated with you, if you want to ask anything, or you can message me through my social media platforms. I'm really happy for you to reach out to me if you feel the need to share or whatever. Uh, I'm here. So thank you for listening, and I will speak to you again soon.